In our last episode, we at last saw Wilde finally seeing off his rival, Christopher Hitchin, and in this episode, we'll watch his rise in his unofficial role as Thief-Taker General. To the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast, I'm Steve, your host. The role of thief-taker was required as there was no official police force, and with the demise of Hitchin, Wilde had slowly established himself as London's law. And with Wilde's position, cunning and skills, it gained him power over most thieves in London, in so much that if he wanted to see them, they'd better hurry and attend. They knew he had information he could use against most of them, and their lives were absolutely in his power. If they rejected his proposals, or proved resistant to his demands, he would address them in the following way. If you ever see me again, you see an enemy. It was therefore an extraordinary influence that Wilde obtained over the thieves, both given his position to ensure convictions against these criminals, but also to use his talents to ensure their freedom, even when caught in criminal activities. His usual method, when his accomplices were apprehended, and he was not able to prevent their being brought to trial, he would contrive strategies for keeping the principal witnesses out of court so that they were generally dismissed in defective evidence. Wilde was the most ruthless enemy to those who were stupid enough to reject his terms and dispose of their stolen items independently. Given the relative size of London, and Wilde's knowledge of the underground method of disposal of goods, it was scarcely possible for them to escape his vigilance. And by the convictions of these criminals, he obtained the rewards offered for conviction at £40 a head, and it greatly extended his dominance over the other thieves, who considered him with a kind of awe, whilst at the same time established his character, standing as the champion of the law. Indeed, although not officially recognised as thief-taker-general, Wilde was in 1720 insulted by the Privy Council about the increase in crime in London. Wilde suggested a higher reward to those who turned in criminals, and the Council increased this reward to £100 a head for criminals within the London area. It was the practice of Wilde to instruct those he employed as how to conduct themselves. But if they neglected to observe his rules or were guilty of any kind of error in the schemes he suggested, it was to be understood 
he would ensure them convicted at the next sessions. He was asked how it was possible that he could carry on the business of restoring stolen effects and yet not be in league with the robbers. And his replies were always, My acquaintance amongst thieves is very extensive and when I receive information of a robbery I make inquiry after the suspected parties and leave word at proper places that, if the goods are left where I appoint, the reward shall be paid and no questions asked. Surely no portion of guilt can fall upon me, for I hold no interviews with the robbers, nor are the goods given into my possession. But Wilde was involved in every aspect of crime. A lady visited Piccadilly, and her servants, leaving her sedan at the door, went to a nearby pub house. On return, the vehicle was stolen. The men immediately went to Wilde, informed of their loss, and he gave them the usual fee. They were asked to call upon him again in a couple of days. On the second visit to Wilde, he extorted from them a reward, and then directed them to attend the chapel in Lincoln's Inn Fields the following morning during the times of prayer. The men went according to the appointment and found under the piazza of the chapel the chair. A young gentleman named Knapp took his mother to Sadler's Wells. On returning, they were attacked about ten at night near Gray's Inn by five men. Knapp was knocked down and his mother cried out for help and she was shot, falling down dead. A reward was offered, and Wilde was seen to be diligent in his attempts to catch the murderers. From a description given, Wilde immediately judged the gang of five to be composed of William White, Thomas Thurland, John Chapman, Timothy Dunn, and Isaac Cragg. And on the evening of Sunday the April the 8th, Wilde received intelligence that some of the men were drinking with their prostitutes at a house kept by John Weatherly. He went to Weatherly's, accompanied by his assistant, Isaac Abraham, and there they caught William White. White then gave information to Wilde that Thomas Thurland was at the Bell Inn, Smithfield, in the company of a woman. Wilde, accompanied by his assistants, went to the inn, and he saw Thomas Thurland. Thurland had two pistols, but by being suddenly seized, he was not able to make use of the weapons and taken into custody. The chase continued on the following night to a house in Whitehorse Alley, Drury Lane, where they apprehended John Chapman. And shortly after, Wilde apprehended the fourth member of the gang, Isaac Ragg, a public house at St Giles. Being taken before the magistrate, in the course of his examination, Rag, in order to save his own neck, impeached 22 accomplices, charging them with being housebreakers, street robbers and receiving of goods. White, Thurlin and Chapman were arranged at the Sessions House at the Old Bailey on an indictment for assaulting John Knapp and taking from him a hat and a wig. 
They were also indicted for the murder of Mary Knapp, widow. Why? by discharging a pistol loaded with powder and bullets, and thereby giving her a wound of which she immediately died. The three offenders were executed at Tyburn on the 8th of June. The hunt continued for the last member, Timothy Dunn, who escaped the hands of justice by moving to new lodgings, and he kept a low profile. Wilde, however, didn't worry as he knew Dunn must either die through want or by returning to his criminal ways, and so confident was he of success, he made a wager of ten guineas, with he would have them in custody before the next court sessions. And Dunn's solitude became intolerable to him, and he sent his wife to make inquiries of Wilde in order to discover whether he was still in danger of being apprehended. Wilde used this meeting for one of his people to follow her home. She took a riverboat at Blackfriars and landed at the Falcon, but suspecting a man was employed to follow her, she again took the water and crossed to Whitefriars. And observing that she was still being followed, she ordered the boatman to proceed to Lambeth, and having landed there, it being nearly dark, imagined she'd escaped the observation of Wilde's man and therefore walked immediately home. The man, however, had tracked her all the way to Maid Lane near Bankside, Southwark, and watched her enter a house. He marked the wall with chalk and then returned to Wilde. And Wilde accompanied Abraham and two deputies and went the following morning to the house where they saw the woman had been seen to enter. Dunn, hearing a noise and suspecting he was going to be discovered, got through a back window on the second floor upon the roof of the pantry and the bottom, which was about eight feet from the ground. But Abraham was waiting, fired a pistol, wounding Dunn in the arm. He fell from the pantry into the yard. After the fall... One of the other deputies fired and wounded him in the face with a small shot. Dunn was secured and carried to Newgate and was tried at the ensuing sessions. Wilde won his bet and Dunn was soon after executed at Tyburn. And Wilde's reputation was boosted by news of the victory for justice, bringing down a criminal gang. And after his relationship with Mary Milliner, Wilde had various other relationships, some which ran parallel. One of these was Betty Mann, who upon discovering his criminal ways, converted to Catholicism, but died in 1718. Wilde was devoted to her memory and made it known he wished to be buried at her side. Other women were Sarah Parrin, Judith Nunn, whom he had another daughter. He then set his attention on a noted beauty, Mary Brown. The only problem was she was already married to a robber called Skaldine, who upon learning of this threatened Wilde. But Wilde did what Wilde did best and had Skull arrested and subsequently hanged. 
He then took up with Mary. True romance indeed. In the year 1718, an act had been passed deeming every person guilty of a capital offence who should accept a reward in consequence of restoring stolen effects without prosecuting the thief. It was the general opinion that this law would effectively suppress the practices of Wilde, but this only led him again to change tack. He now declined the custom of receiving a crown from the person who applied to him, but upon the second or third time of calling, informed them that all he had been able to learn respecting their business was that if a sum of money was left at an appointed place, their property would be restored the same day. And sometimes, as the person robbed was returning from Wilde's house, he was accosted in the street by a man who delivered the stolen effects, at the same time producing a note expressing the sum that was to be paid for them. Thus, it couldn't be proved that Wilde either saw the thief, received the goods, or accepted a reward. And in that, he had only acted honourably in the recovery of their missing goods. When he was asked what would satisfy him for his trouble, he told the person who had recovered their property that he had done what he had done merely from a principle of doing good. And therefore, he made no claim, but if he accepted a present, you should not consider it as due, but as an instance of generosity to which he would accept accordingly. Wilde's business increased and he opened an office in Newinter's Lane to the management of which he appointed his assistant, Abraham. He proved a remarkable hard-working and faithful servant to Wilde who entrusted him with all matters. Wilde then had a short illness so that he went to the country for a short time and he'd hired a house in Dulwich, leaving his business under the direction of Abraham. And during this time, a lady had her pocket picked of banknotes to the amount of £7,000. She went to Abraham, who in a few days apprehended three pickpockets. Upon their delivering all up the notes, Abraham let them go. When the lady returned to Abraham, he gave her the money and she made him a present of £400, which he delivered to Wilde. The three pickpockets were afterwards apprehended for other offences and transported, one of them carefully concealing a banknote for a thousand pounds in the lining of his coat. And on arrival in Maryland, he procured cash for the note. Having purchased his freedom, he then went to New York. He is said to have assumed the character of a gentleman and his story lost in time. Margaret Dodwell and Alice Wright went to Wilde's house asking for a private talk with them. Observing one of these women to be with child, Wilde imagined she might want a father to her unborn baby, for it was also part of his business 
to procure persons to stand in place of the real father. Being shown to the other room, Dodwell spoke in the following manner. I do not come, Mr. Wilde, to inform you that I have met with any loss, but I wish to tell you to do something. If you follow my advice, you may acquire a thousand pounds, or perhaps many thousands. Wilde showed interest in an enterprise so highly lucrative, and the woman proceeded thus. My plan is this. You must provide two or three strong men who will undertake to rob a house in Wormwood Street near Bishopgate. This house is kept by our employer, a cane maker named John Cook, who is a lodger, an old lady, immensely rich, and she keeps her money in a box in her apartment, and she's now gone to the country. One of the men must find an opportunity to get into the shop in the evening, conceal himself in the saw pit there. He may let his companions in when the family are sleeping. It may be particularly necessary to secure two apprentices and a boy who lie in the garret. When the boys have been secured, there will be no difficulty getting possession of the old lady's money as her room is under that which the boys sleep. In the room facing that of the old lady, Mr Cook and his wife sleep, and indeed, I think it would be as well to knock him on the head, for then his drawers may be rifled, as he's never without money. Having heard the above proposal, Wilde took the woman into custody and lodged them in Newgate. It's not known, either from a principle of virtue or justice, but he certainly suspected that their plan was to draw him into a trap. Wilde prosecuted Dodgewell and Wright for a misdemeanour, found each guilty, and they were sentenced to six months' imprisonment. Wilde again showed his ingenuity in 1723 when Quill Arnold, one of Wilde's right-hand man, was accused of stealing a pair of silver buckle shoes from the house of Martin Bellamy, a well-known thief who'd forged Wilde's signature to cash a note in hand in his name worth nine guineas, and Quilt was facing a hanging offence. On the trial, Wilde testified that he'd ordered Quilt to enter Bellamy's home and bring Bellamy with him. Quilt was unable to find him, but he brought the shoes as proof of her being there. Wilde emphasised how important Quilt was to apprehending dangerous criminals and making London a safer place. And Quilt was acquitted of his charges. Walking past an inn near Smithfield one day, Wilde spotted a large trunk in the yard and suspecting it may contain property of value, he instructed one of the thieves he employed to carry it off. The man he used for this was named Jeremiah Rann and he was believed to be one of the most dexterous thieves in London. Having dressed himself so to look exactly to resemble a porter, he carried the trunk away without being observed. And Mr Jarvis, a whipmaker by trade and the proprietor of the trunk, discovered his loss and he then applied to Wilde, who returned him the goods in consideration for receiving 10 guineas. 
but sometime later, a disagreement took place between Wilde and Ran, and Wilde had Ran apprehended on charges. Ran was tried and condemned to death, but the day before Ran was executed, he sent for Mr Jarvis and related to him all the particulars of the trunk, and Wilde was threatened with prosecution by Mr Jarvis. But, luckily for Wilde, all these worries arising were soon dissipated by the unexplained and untimely death of Mr Jarvis. The above-mentioned stories are just a small representation of Wilde's criminal deeds. There have been many books written about Wilde, and Wilde's story is also closely linked to Jack Shepard, an inept criminal but famous for escaping prison four times, and that's for a completely separate episode in the future. But that's it for part two. Join me again next week for the concluding episode and the downfall of Jonathan Wilde. And until then, bye-bye.